Hello, welcome to another episode of Thought Leaders Interview. My name is Ali Mwakaneno, your usual host. And uh, today I'm sitting with Maurice. Maurice Makolo, the Senior Director Africa Hub at the Habitat for Humanity International. And uh, we want to get to know Maurice a little bit. So know his experience from where he came from professionally, his journey in Ford Foundation and his current role at Africa Hub. And then maybe dive deeper into what the Habitat for Humanity does in terms of furthering the SDGs in Africa through um, enabling access to, to housing and how do they work with different players on the ground to achieve their objectives. Welcome, Maurice. Thank you so much, Ali. How did you come to start working for Habitat for Humanity? Thank you so much, Ali. And uh, let me just say that many times our histories are about where we come from. At a younger age, I wanted to be a priest, a Catholic priest. I went to the seminary. I stayed in the seminary for three years. During that time, there was an issue that we raised uh, that ended up causing our entire class to be expelled. Mm -hmm. But we were seeking an understanding about a particular issue that concerned us under, in relation to our teacher of English, who was a Ugandan uh, that we, we loved. I felt that at the age of 17, I was the subject of improper use of power. And so when I finished my high school, I decided to become a lawyer. And my intention was that I needed to be able to speak on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. And so throughout my life, I have always believed that there is a reason God gave me a voice. Mm -hmm. And I've also known that not everybody has a voice. My voice, therefore, is a privilege and I'm going to use it. And so I have applied my law mostly in public interest and in support of communities. And so in addition to being a practicing lawyer for over 10 years, I also founded a non-governmental organization that was on natural resources and governance. A combination of that experience saw me work for government, saw me work for civil society, but eventually for the last nine years, I worked as the regional director of the Ford Foundation Office for Eastern Africa. So I was essentially a donor for nine years. As I finished that, I still kept reminding myself about applying my voice. And that is how I made the transition from the Ford Foundation, where I was in charge of application of money, to now this other side of Habitat, which I started on the 1st of February this year on the concept of housing and how important that is in the lives of human beings. And I guess we can dig a little bit more into that shortly. Right. Um, maybe to talk about for the, for the, for the past 10 years, you say, what were some of the, of the projects that you oversaw that you, you're proud of or rather, what was your impact in the foundation? You know, there's a lot that I believe uh, the historians and those who come after me will evaluate so uh, that I do not embellish uh, my own record. But uh, I think I'm humbled to have contributed in a number of ways. One is in developing a pipeline of leaders and leadership in East Africa. Mm -hmm. I believe, Ali, that it is important that leadership is generated, leadership is supported because it all rises or falls on leadership. When we have good leaders, 
then things work. And I'll give you an example why leadership matters. During this time of COVID, we did many things, as I'm sure you did. But one time I went with my family to just walk around Ololua Nature Reserve. And I'd never gone there. This was the first time. So I went with my entire family. My youngest born son is 11. And uh, as we went, I told him, when we go, we'll go, we turn right, we go to the waterfalls. And then from the waterfalls, we go to the caves. We did both. And then so after we finished, he asked me, so daddy, where are we going? And I said, I do not know. <laughs> and he looked at me and in his small voices, you do not know where you're taking us? Then we are lost. <laughs> and I told the mom, this kid has said some, some two beautiful things about leadership. Where leaders have no vision, people are lost. But the second thing that he has raised is the perennial tension between this idea of authentic leaders who are supposed to be vulnerable enough to say that they do not know or to admit when they do not know, but also the expectation of the people that are led that their leaders know what they are talking about. So one thing that I've really consistently worked on is the process of creating a pipeline of leadership in East Africa. Number two that I'm also very proud of is getting civil society to be a respected partner of governments. Because I can tell you, at its best, civil society is a worthy and critical partner of government, communities and private sector for the society to grow. And I have managed, I did manage in my time to make sure that they respect the legitimacy and relevance of civil society was maintained. The third, and I will stop at this third, there could be many others, is to actually create opportunities for partnerships. Partnerships between private sector, partnerships between government and private sector, mm -hmm. government and civil society, like essentially getting all hands on deck. Okay? Because a number of times, what keeps people from talking to each other is a trust gap, a trust deficit. So when you bring people together, and I used my role as the head of World Foundation and the brand and respect that the foundation brought to be able to convene people around the table to bridge that trust gap so that together we are stronger. Because I believe that partnerships are a way of the future and a way to the future. And these are things that I worked on and the things that I still believe that are important and therefore I'm working on. Before we... Uh expand the conversation to the scope of, uh, uh, to the role rather of donor funding in, um, within Africa. We've had a change in, uh, in the geographical scope uh, amid its transition from the Ford Foundation to the, the Habitat for Humanity. Yes. Um, what do you think, or what has that meant for you in terms of the impact that you have? In some ways, it has meant that I have a bigger geography to cover mm -hmm. than before. And that's a privilege that comes with responsibility. I have to think beyond East Africa. But that means I also have to challenge myself to understand the other geographies even more. Because it is multicultural, right? West Africa, Southern Africa, Central Africa, you know, Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. So that for me is a huge responsibility. And it is also means that I have to change the approach 
for the same reason that what might work in one geography may not necessarily be what is working in, in, another. Uh, in another. The other shift really is I was a donor in charge of you know a bucket in a manner of speaking if you borrowed from uh, Chinua Chebe's writings it could be that I am I was holding both the yam and the knife mm-hmm. at the same time habitat for humanity is a receiver of money it is not a donor okay it is an it is not a donor it receives money from different people as well that means that I am in a different mindset as well. The levels of accountability are in some ways shifted. I had accountability because I was in charge of money, so a lot was expected me in terms of how I approached the disbursement of that money. Now that accountability is still there, but it's shifted in terms of how I deploy that money. Okay? But related to that is also the the fact that I am now working with a different set of people. When I was granting money, I was working with, you know, maybe intermediary organizations, civil society organizations that mostly were based in cities and other um, towns. Mm-hmm. Now, the primary support that we are providing is with communities that are on the, the borderlines. You know, if you think about in Malawi, working to help with the people who experienced Hurricane Idai a few years ago so that they can build up. If you think about Haiti, where we are doing other workers per habitat, people who are recovering from uh, the, the earthquake. If you think about our work in uh, Beirut, people who are recovering from the, the explosion at the port. So the reconstruction uh, post-disaster or post-war. So it's a different kind. And so it requires of me to generate a different mindset and a different culture of work. Which brings me to, uh, to, to the next question here. Um, just to get you correctly, first of all, you've had the change from um, disbursement to, to deployment of, yeah. of finances. Mm-hmm. And uh, with regards to the stakeholders that you work with, mm-hmm. I would say that you're more downstream in terms of your relationship to where the funds make impact? Yes and no. Go on. Remember I talked about partnerships. So true, my work is a little bit more downstream. Mm -hmm. But, and this this probably, and it takes me to some of the things therefore that I have hoped for uh, at the Africa Hub. And if I could say that as a way of answering what you have asked me, okay? You see, I am in charge of essentially Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. The UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, classifies 46 out of the 54 countries in Africa as belonging to Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. The same UN says between, um, by the year 2025, between 2 to 2.5 billion people will be living in Sub-Saharan Africa. Because Africa is very young, we're essentially talking about, about a very young population, okay? Now, and they will be in need of shelter, they'll be in need of everything that is associated with shelter, you know, water provision and all this kind of other stuff. Mm-hmm. What that means is that 
we have to work at different levels. For us to meet the needs of that 2 to 2.5 billion people, there are things that we may need to do on the ground in terms of working with the communities. But there are things which could be of a policy nature that we have to play at a higher level with governments and with regional bodies, such as the African Union, so that the impact is much bigger because you can only do, you, you can, in, a, in a year, you can only build so many houses. But if you are able to influence how governments approach this idea of housing, mm -hmm. if you are able to influence how private sector thinks about how they can unlock resources for housing, then your impact is going to be much bigger. And that is why I said yes and no, because there are things we are doing on the ground with communities, but there are also things that I want us, and indeed that we are doing. You, you've talked about um, impacting the different stakeholders that uh, have interest in, in housing. Uh, how, is, how is your office sort of um, driving that conversation in terms of impacting policy when it comes to government and uh, sort of magnifying the interest and the need when it comes to the private sector? Great. So, uh, again, the problems we seek to solve mm -hmm. are a result of years of exclusions, systemic um, inequities. That means, therefore, that how to solve them must require multiple actors and actions. Right? So what we need, therefore, to do and what I am seeking to do with the Africa Hub now is we put together a work program that enables us to interface with, say, private sector so that we can work with private sector to develop products that are going to support low-cost housing so that we make people capable of having a decent shelter. Mm -hmm. right? So it's a collaborative effort, but certainly something that we can lead. Also encouraging, and you know, we have resources that we are working with the private sector and on our own to generate kind of uh, new uh, ideas around building technologies and building materials that are tested and are proven to work. Uh, so again, that's the private sector side. Maybe um, before, sorry to cut you short, I'm a very visual person. Mm -hmm. How would the um, alternative or different materials that would enable um, the private sector to sort of leverage more housing look like? How does it look like on the ground, if you don't mind? So we have, for example, a partner that is called Earth Enabled, you know, based out of Rwanda, that they have uh, developed some material for flooring mm -hmm. that is not necessarily the tile that you know would be used in some high-end homes but is superior to the mud earth that we we are used to especially in some of the most vulnerable communities okay so this is a stronger product that enables people to improve their their homes uh, at a very cheap uh, cost that's one okay the other one is a building material, maybe even for the wall. So instead of people using blocks uh, or, or bricks as we know them, then there are technologies for developing you know, construction 
uh, including even roofing. Mm-hmm. Yes, there, there are different products, I can tell you, whether it is interlocking bricks of different kinds, making products even from uh, recycled uh, plastics um, that have been tested and are actually being used in different ways. Okay? Or working with governments to train and certify more artisans, foodies, whether they are plumbers, whether they are electricians, whether they are uh, fitters of different kinds. Okay, So that working with the national authorities that certify these different people, you make building cheaper by making labor available at a cheaper cost. Because a lot of people who are building are also on a construction. They are trying to identify these people. And I can tell you, surprisingly, a few years ago when I was working at the Ford Foundation, we worked with Dalberg to kind of assess where were the opportunities for young people in Africa. Because that was an Africa-wide pro- mm. pro- project. And they said three areas, manufacturing, agriculture, construction. Okay? Because in construction, surprisingly, it's a growing area, but there are very few people who are fundies, who are electricians, who are plumbers, who are this. Okay? In agriculture, the average age of the farmer is about 50-something. So even if you push it to a lifespan of 60, it means we have a 10-year period for the active farmer. If we don't get younger people taking farming and bringing new ideas around farming, it is also a food security issue. Okay? And of course, in manufacturing and that kind of stuff. So it means we've got to expand uh, the scope. That is a partnership between the private sector, governments, and communities. So we are therefore working on all this. Then, of course, it means we have to enter into memoranda of understanding with different governments. Like right now, our Habitat for Humanity Kenya has memoranda of understanding with Tana River, for example to kind of help because Tana River has this uh, perennial um, situation where maybe when it rains then there are lots of floods and you know there is always they have some humanitarian situation that goes on there so our Habitat for Humanity Kenya uh, office has a memorandum of understanding with Tana River to try and figure out how to kind of be much more resilient going into the future so this thing like break the cycle mm-hmm. or yeah in that sense and this is more like in the term in terms of housing or in terms of housing in terms of housing okay yeah kind of developing materials that uh, are much more resilient to weather you know and even how you can move them and you know uh, we have teams of subject matter experts that are figuring out different things okay then we have uh, with um uh, again with um McQueenie county to think about titling because when it comes to housing, security of tenure is also very critical because you can't just build your house anywhere. It determines how much you're going to invest. If you are worried about whether you have security of tenure, it changes different things. So that requires us to get into arrangements with governments as well, but also with other partners like UN Habitat because this is also their forte for purposes of not only fundraising, and, but also raising the visibility of the criticality of housing as a human need and indeed a human right. Now that we're getting more into, into the flesh of this conversation, um, talking about your projects, some of them in Tana River and, and, and Makuweni, 
what what has been your experience in building in other parts of, of Africa that perhaps could um, inspire local infrastructure towards building more affordable and resilient housing? Right. Uh, that's another excellent question, Ali. One, my our experience is you've got to work with the communities that are involved. Okay? Because you are going to identify you you may not build houses for everyone, okay? Mm-hmm. So you have to have a criteria for identifying who is going to occupy the houses that you build. That means you've got to be in partnership with the communities from the start to the end. You could also uh, build houses that are not culturally sensitive. So you've got to work with them so that you are you are making sure that that is also being figured out. Right. You also have to watch for the unintended consequences of your good deeds. An example could be that you build these nice houses that you give a few people. And in the eyes of the rest of the community, therefore, they are now set apart. They're probably affluent, you know. They can't go asking for the things that they used to ask before. So you help kind of gentrify them. Exactly. So you've got to watch for unintended consequences of good deeds. So these are things that we're learning from other areas of our work as well. The third point is um, building for resilience, okay? in the sense that, um, you know, look at how Nairobi has kept people in, you know, like very cold for like three three months. And a lot of our houses were not built, uh, you know, with a heating system or anything like that. So how are you going to start building houses that are sensitive to even climate change, sensitive to other weather uh, changes and other uh, vagaries of, uh, of nature. So these are things that are causing us to work with uh, our different entities, whether it is our national organizations like Habitat for Humanity Malawi or Habitat for Humanity Zambia um, or one of our kind of top-notch research um, uh, organization uh, centers, we call it the Tawiliga Center for Innovation in, uh, in Shelter that is helping to think about what are the kind of innovations that we can have so that we make shelter affordable. Allow me to walk you back a little bit, Maurice. Yep, sure. You talked about, you know, making sure that you work with the community to make sure that the people which who you work with or the people who you seek to, to touch, for, for the lack of a better word, fit the criteria. What's the criteria? What are we looking into? And my, my second question is, when it comes to your work with different communities across Africa, what are some of the ways you are or you plan to impact the lives of people while at the same time maintaining the integrity of architecture, since we have varied architecture across the continent, mm-hmm. as well as maintaining the integrity when it comes to the sourcing of the different materials, such that you're not building you're not building a Manhattan somewhere in Malawi or in DRC. Yeah. Indeed. Brilliant. One way to look at it, Ali, is to appreciate now what shelter is. Okay? And I'll give you also a story that helps you to see shelter even through the eyes of younger people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're young, but people younger than you. In March last year, when the Kenya government issued the first 
COVID-19 containment measures, uh, you saw how the police re reacted and overreacted, very zealously trying to enforce this, beating people, doing all this. My 13-year-old son asked me one day, so daddy, some of those people that we see on the streets, do the police also beat them? But even if they were to go home, since the government is saying go home, and where do they go? Where do they go? You know, that conversation warmed my heart. It warmed my heart because, and my cube at that time had not even joined Habitat, but it warmed my heart because a 13-year-old could see beyond his own circumstances the social injustice that was happening because of this concept of home. And for sure, over the last two years, especially our experience with COVID, we've been reminded that a home, a house, shelter, is not just about the four walls. These are education centers. Children are studying from home. These are health facilities. Every day that the health minister or ministry issues results, there are more people who have recovered from home from COVID than those who have recovered from the hospitals. These are recovered health centers effectively. These are workstations. People are working from home. So our whole understanding of what home, house or shelter is must therefore shift. And so when we are talking about how we are impacting, how we are maintaining the integrity of the constructions and everything else, is to understand that what we are seeking to do is not just to put four walls. We are doing much more than that. We are raising hope in communities. You are dignifying individuals and families and society. Okay, But at the same time, you must uh, understand that you are a corporate uh, citizen in that sense. So if there are uh, if you're a corporate citizen, then you have your rights, but you also have your responsibilities. And some of those responsibilities mean contributing to uh, maintaining the integrity of environments that you're working in, for example. Mm -hmm. So when you are sourcing your materials, you ask yourself, are there certain procurement regulations that you need to pay attention to? For example, in Kenya, the 30% rule about giving provision for young, for young people and people with disabilities and you know, sourcing things locally so that you're building the economies of those particular areas, but you're also creating employment for younger people. Mm -hmm. Because that is also how you, you change society. And those people who are there then also see themselves as having a role to play. If it is about sourcing, because construction can also mess up environments, it's about how are you working with the environmental authorities to make sure that you're mitigating environmental harm, whether from uh, dredging or from sand harvesting or from marm harvesting or from whatever uh, things that you need to do for purposes of construction. So it is this combination of partnerships with the communities, and that's why we are promoting people-private-public partnerships, so that together we are more. And it is actually this sense of, since we are talking about Africa, uh, you know, our usual wise sayings and uh, the proverbs, where they say, um, if you want to go fast, 
you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go with others. I believe that as a continent, we want to go far. I believe that as habitat for humanity, we want to go far. By that acknowledgement, therefore, it behooves us to work in partnerships, all hands on deck, so that tomorrow is better than today. Maurice, if you could give us more anecdotes in terms of some of the work you've done on the ground here. There are a number of anecdotes. I mean, we have, for example, our, and it depends on the different pieces of work that we're doing. So I'll give you a few. One is a piece of work that we are calling Vulnerable Group Housing, or VGF in short. So this is really about construction of uh, houses for, for people that, you know, and if you go to villages and you, you know, you come from uh, one of the places where, uh, uh, you know, Lamu County told me you're from Lamu County, according to the Commission on Revenue Allocation, belongs to some of the 10 poorest counties in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some of them being to Kana, you know, and those other places. You can see the types of houses that people, you know. So if you go to an area and you try to transform that so they can have a different kind of shelter. So through VGF, Vulnerable Group Housing, we have changed the way uh, communities see what is possible about housing. We've also partnered, and this has been across Africa in all the different places that we work. We've also partnered with different um, communities to even build schools. There's a school that we've recently built in, um, I think it's called Mukima, Mukima Secondary School, that was built fully by funds raised by Habitat for Humanity Kenya in conjunction with some of our partners from South Korea, for example. Mm-hmm. A full secondary school that now has over 100 students in Akipia. I recently went there on the 17th of July to just experience that. Fully operational on solar, not even on mains electricity. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Then we also have um, the advocacy piece. I told you earlier about how critical land is uh, for purposes, land and especially security of tenure for the pieces of land. So we have also worked to secure tenure security for a number of communities and in particular for young people and uh, women because a number of young people uh, for cultural reasons by bad luck they lose their parents especially their fathers so they can easily lose access to their own um, um, inheritance and so through advocacy we have managed to change a number of laws like in Zambia that was a big problem uh, that uh, we have had some success there in Lesotho, uh, we have had some success there, and we are continuing to work on a number of these things across several countries. The other example I could give you is in um, on the financing side. Okay, on the financing side, where we have worked with different um, microfinance institutions to basically uh, make available finances that are affordable, I mean like a cheap access to, to resources for people who want to build uh, properties. Okay? And these are really making it possible for people who cannot afford the other uh, 
the other side, like <laughs> banks, you know, apps, stand chat, whatever. But who do need to have decent shelter? So it really depends from um, how the different angles that we are also looking at here. Um, this there's something you talked about here that I feel like is an opportunity to improve the understanding of Habitat for Humanity in general, VGF, which again still drags me back to to uh, my, my previous question. Who are the different people? Because from what you said, it seems like you have different target, targets in the community. And how do you narrow down to you know, identifying the need and then putting together the resources, both in terms of finances and the partnerships that are necessary to bridge that gap? Okay. So part of it is data-driven. So it's a question of um, if you think about your own country, where are some of the places that uh, there is um, where your need is is kind of most acute? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you go there, and it could be about um, from government data. I just talked about which are ways poverty felt, where is this vulnerability, you know, this kind of stuff. And then you work in partnership with several people there, which could include government, but definitely communities, because you want to make sure that when you go to a particular community, you may not be able to... Communities are at different levels of their lives, by the way. Collectively, they may be poor in that sense, they may be vulnerable, and I'm using words in quotes, but if you go in, you know, a forest from far looks just like a forest, but if you go closer, you begin to see the different types of trees, okay? Mm-hmm. Yes, some are just leanders, some are undergrowth, some are this size and the other side, this height and the other height. When you go there, then you work with the communities and kind of agree, what does vulnerability look like for you? Okay? So you're not coming into the community with your own idea of what vulnerability looks like. Yes, you do have your own idea of what a vulnerability can look like, but you don't impose it there. You basically have a conversation. And therefore, if we were to identify people that we could build houses for, how would we identify those people? Because you... You do not want, again, I go back to the issue of you can do harm by doing good. By doing good. You want to avoid that. So you help, you work with the community so that they can also um, help you identify who amongst them they feel are the ones that are in need of this. And actually, that is what the experience has been working with communities to do that. One of the most recent experiences is actually even going to define what is the appropriate size for that kind of community because you want to have one that is sizable enough but also cost effective because you want to stretch the shilling okay so that you can do more houses so you don't do a grand one that only goes to a few people but you don't also want to do a very tiny one that is, doesn't make sense. And so even working with the communities, conversations are going on around what is the appropriate size for any particular community. Because also when you have left them, they are the ones who have to maintain these houses. They have to wash them. They are, I mean, like, they are, they are living there, right? Right. Yeah, so you also do not want to, the kind of house that I am living in, you know, 
it costs money to maintain. If a glass is broken, you've got to replace it. If something falls, if the, if you are going to put several bulbs in the, in one room compared to one bulb, that's a different cost. So you want to take these things on board as well. Maybe um, earlier, earlier in the conversation, you you talked about security of of, of tenure, mm-hmm. and uh, we know that land is a contentious issue, especially in Kenya. Yeah. What do you think are ways which we can uh, improve home ownership period, and specifically improve home ownership by then guaranteeing security of tenure, especially at a at a local level? Here we're looking at Kenya. Okay, so again, it goes into our how we approach our land governance. Mm-hmm. Okay. As a lawyer and as somebody who worked in natural resource management, I can tell you there are a number of things. There's a sense in which we think about land as being very individual. And a lot of investments were spent on making land very, very private. That's number one. Okay. And so land became very expensive because everybody was thinking, my land, my land. land, my was, land. So it became expensive because it was privatized. Because it was privatized. But there's also the aspect of community land that, um, you know, has also been abused. So there's also the element of corruption. And that is one of the biggest reasons why uh, tenor security is an issue. Because even when you have your piece of paper called the title deed, you could be sitting with it here, but something is happening with your piece of land because somebody in the lands ministry has generated a second uh, title and given it to somebody and you know can do it. so that's also a product of corruption but also just an absence of integrity uh, both at the individual level but also in the system and that's why we must also load some of the efforts by the government now like to digitize which is why we are also working with Makwini government but also to at the national level uh, the land uh, registry has undergone tremendous uh, digitalization and part of that means that there is a lot more safety because if you are connected to it if some transaction takes place you are most likely going to receive a, an alert that something is happening. Yeah. so it's also about deploying technology so that we can eliminate human error and some of this human error is is manufactured okay Mm -hmm. but if we go the technological way files can no longer disappear because files can appear you know by at the click of a button it also means that you are able uh, to make use of your land at the shortest notice possible because in the past even getting the, the search to confirm that your own land belongs to you could take you forever because they tell you you know go come tomorrow do this kind of stuff so technology is key but i also say this early i think we have to think beyond land because land is limited Okay, I know we are talking about housing and, uh, and housing quite often requires. So when I'm talking about uh, talk, thinking beyond land is uh, we've got to reduce the pressure on land for different things so that we're thinking about land for uh, the critical things such as housing. 
You see, when people think about land as an investment where they just hold it, because for them, that is how they prove that they have resources, then you are denying other people the opportunity to, for example, have decent housing. Because for you, your approach to land is, land is property that proves that I, I am worth this much. And so by saying we've got to think about beyond land, it means in relation to how we define our property worthiness and that kind of stuff, so that people can invest in other economic uh, activities that still are good, you know, like stocks and uh, bonds and stuff like that. Yeah. Because part of the lack of availability of land for purposes of housing and other activities is because people think about land as where they can invest all their property, okay? It is lying fallow, but on this understanding that just by the fact that it is land, it is appreciating, okay? Do you understand? Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, there are people who need that land, who can't get it because your 20,000 acres for you is how you prove that you have property. And that's what I'm saying. We've got to think beyond land for purposes of uh, accumulation of of property, not think about property in the sense of just land, so that we can free land for some of these things. It is going to make it even a, a lot cheaper because we are causing shortages, some of it artificial shortages. Simply because we are holding in the hope of appreciation. Exactly. So that's what I meant about uh, thinking beyond land because there is a lot that is held there that we are, we are no longer using. And my generation and generations above me are some of the biggest culprits about that. We, we want to look at uh, how many title deeds do I have? And you ask yourself, when is the last time you ever even went into that? What did you do in, on that property 10 years later? And you'll find that a number of them, there's absolutely nothing, nothing. nothing that's happening. But so if you're able to think about other ways of uh, accumulating wealth, beyond land, then we make land available for some of the critical uses that land needs to be available for, i.e. agriculture for food production, housing for shelter, because we know these are things that people need as basic needs, food and shelter. Looking at your scope from, from a bird's eye view, as Senior Director of Africa, of course, you interact with teams working from different countries here. What country in Africa do you think would be a better example of a more efficient tenure system? And what are some of the lessons that we can pick up from that part of the country or that corner of the continent? You know, it's not a question of comparing one country and another because those countries are products of many things. Cultures, products of um, colonial histories, uh, socio-economic uh, developments, mm -hmm. okay? Um, you know, if you think about Tanzania, for example, because of their Ujamaa history, the way they have even done the village lands act and stuff like that, mm -hmm. there's a sense in which uh, the land administration is taken very close to the people. Um, and there are good things to say about that. But obviously, uh, if people manage to penetrate uh, local people who may be poor, vulnerable, illiterate, and all this, and kind of make them uh, sign off or give off their uh, their lands, 
then you can see that some of, some of those drawbacks. And um, um, that is not an indictment of Tanzania. I'm just giving you an example to see why it is not possible to compare. These are not apples and apples. These are apples, oranges, pineapples, and different things. For sure. What we do need to underscore is what are the key pieces that are needed for any um, good... Um, for, for countries to, to survive when it comes to issues of land and housing. Security is important. However, you define that security. Because some of these, for some places, communal land ownership is actually the surest way to keep it um, secure. Mm -hmm. Because it means you have more people to interact with. Uh, if you wanted to corrupt them, you have a lot more challenges than before. So there are places where communal ownership is actually strengthened and the, some of the best ways. In 2006, I went to do something in Botswana and it was one of the most amazing things that I, I experienced about how they dealt with uh, their natural resources. So there are different levels. There are also spaces where um, you have to think as a country about just land banking because you do not want to develop all your all your land uh, for purposes um, of um, like you don't the whole concept of banking money for example mm -hmm. is that you you don't want to use all your money now you know you do, you don't know what you may need in future in future so you're keeping some for whatever future house wherever it forms you you know there's a future you do not know how it is going to look like but you know there is a future so as communities and as countries grow, there's also this concept of land banks. How do you identify land that may be used now for one purpose, but you want to make sure that whatever use you apply it now mm -hmm. is not something that is so permanent that if you needed to apply something to it tomorrow, it doesn't work. If you needed to build an industry there, if it was used for farming, it would still be available because you can convert. But if you put like high-rise building on it, then it is no longer... It can be converted, it, but then the cost is atrocious. Exactly, yeah. So it's really a question of even at community level, you see the way uh, and our um, uh, pastoralist communities mm -hmm. are examples of this idea of banking where they will say this pasture is not going to be used for the next three months because we know for three months after three months there's going to be drought that is where we are going to be going okay that's the perfect way to understand what a banking is when it comes to land or pasture or natural resources appreciating that you if you have made it all available during the rainy season at all times and everything else when it, you do need it most you have nowhere to go to okay so it's just about this idea of how do we approach what we dealing with situations that we may have to face in the future but then that also requires um again um allow me to narrow down this conversation yeah. to, to kenya where most of private land, especially in peri-urban areas, is used for construction. Mm -hmm. What is something that you would like to see? Or rather, how would the application of land banking look like when it comes to construction, both of uh, private and commercial properties? I, I think it also goes into what we value as a society. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that I cherish and I salute, may her soul rest, rest in peace, Professor Wangari Madai, is when she fought off the construction of Kenya Times Media Trust building at Upuru Park several years ago. When the then government of uh, President Daniel Moy had wanted to construct a multi-story building in, in Uhuru Park. And she fought it, including going to court. And today, we have Uhuru Park as it is. Many people these days run in Karura, and you hear many people, let's go run in Karura. She fought hard because she believed that the society we may have, and this is again another example of what banking could mean. We, this idea of people just thinking that everything needs to be jungle concrete. There's also a saying that it is when you, everything is gone and you have sold all your land and you have done all these things that you discover that money cannot be eaten in the sense that, uh, you know, you think it, it can't buy you everything. Mm -hmm. So what we need to value as a society is also um, aesthetics. How is our society, or even our, our cities looking like? Safety. Okay. How are we designing our roads? And I'm glad that lately, at least in some of these areas, you have spaces where you know people can walk without the risk that they are going to be knocked uh, by motorcyclists, although some of these people ride everywhere. Mm -hmm. But at least in terms of the thinking, you have the sidewalks where people can walk, can run. Previously, everybody was on the road. The runners were on the road, the motorcyclists were on the road, the, bi the biking was on the road, the mkokoteni was on the road. This separation goes into the whole concept of what we, we value as a, as a society. Okay? And when I think about Kenya, I think about Nairobi in particular, you have seen how uh, the pain that a lot of people have gone through because the houses are being demolished to pave way for, you know, for road construction. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's simply because when uh, some of these things were being done, whoever was uh, either approving them was not thinking about this kind of future stuff. So simply, quickly, let's do this. And going into the issue of uh, thinking about what could be there tomorrow, some of those were actually land banks for roads. That's why there were road reserves. The roads, we may not have had the money for the road construction at that particular time, but at least people had an idea that we may need to do something about decongesting the city, so have bypasses, southern bypass, eastern, western, whatever. And, but these are people where these are places where people had constructed their homes, and some people had have gone through a lot of pain. And this, uh, as people who speak about housing, this is a very very serious issue. And so thinking about say tenure, but also in an in a larger context of a society that needs to be orderly, is something that we must take very very seriously. Last year, as we sort of wrap up the conversation. You've been the senior director of Africa Hub for around uh, seven months. Seven months up to now. What are some of the things that we're that we're looking to achieve here within the next say um, eighteen months to five years? One is um, going back to that when I told you about what uh, the sub-Saharan Africa and the things that we need to achieve. One is 
we have we can only achieve so much by building one house at a time okay so we must be at a point where we as habitat mm-hmm. are sitting around the critical tables and influencing changes that are necessary at policy levels at even budgetary levels like even making sure that sufficient budgets are going into issues that matter such as housing mm-hmm. so that for me is very very important influencing th- those particular conversations the other point that i think that i think we should be able to achieve is this whole thing about how we approach tenor security across our african continent and so uh, approaching it either through the regional economic blocks or even at a national government level some of our habitat entities have memoranda of understanding with different ministries making sure that is happening and also even at the sub national level like at the county or local government levels that we are working mm-hmm. but for me one other thing that is very important that we achieve is bringing in the young people into this conversation making youth visible and audible because they are the young, the largest segment of african population we cannot talk about the future not even the present state of africa without the biggest stakeholders in that in this present and in the future young people so through a number of conversations that we are beginning to put together uh, how to make the african young person audible and visible on matters of housing and um, we have uh, a plan for example on uh, the 5th of december which is the international day of the volunteer to launch something around uh, strengthening the voice of young african leaders uh, so that they're already leading you people are already leading you are a leader in your own right you have a voice you have this projector that can take you know uh, your own leadership and your own voice very far how do we make sure that all these leaders that are of today are also helping their brothers and sisters that are coming together and we will generate a six month program that will five months that will take us into around april next year mm-hmm. when we plan to have a, a big international event here in Nairobi what we call the Africa Housing Forum and at the Africa Housing Forum we will be launching our strategy for Africa that I'm working on now uh, and also uh, having a big conversation about young people in housing in Africa so that's part of the plan because i believe that if we can get the right stakeholders in this conversation then we have we stand a chance to not only make impact in africa but through africa and with africans definitely looking forward to to the housing forum race maybe as we wrap up the podcast is there anything that we might have left out that we would like to say maybe any last words just uh, emphasizing and this is really a conversation that we must keep having with our young people mm-hmm. to realize that they matter and this is just a reminder because i think you guys young people know that you matter but i want you to just remind you that you matter and how i also emphasize this is a conversation i had with my first born son 
uh, Easter Monday of 2018, we had gone for lunch at uh, Two Rivers. So if you've ever been there, there's a water park. So the younger kids and their cousins were playing the water park. So I decided to take a walk with him. And I asked him, son, what do you like about the things that I do? And he told me, daddy, I like so many things that you do, but I will find my own ways of doing them. And I was so thrilled because I said, if he is a placeholder for young people, what this generation is telling my generation is that, A, my generation does not have, does not monopolize all the options. They too have options. Number two, that they want to do it on their own terms. That you younger people want to do it on your own terms. And I think that's a good thing because the ways of the old may not necessarily be the ways that serve you now. Mm -hmm. So you must be confident to do this thing on your own terms. And that for me is what I will, I'm going to leave you with. That get involved, be committed, and feel free to do it on your own terms. And for my generation, I think what this young man was reminding me, ours is to support you so that you can do the things on your own terms. And that support can be in terms of just this sharing of experiences of the paths that we have walked. And maybe tell you, don't take this path because it is a dead end street. Don't take this path because it is too long. Don't take this path because it is too short. And it is fraught with so many other challenges. And yes, this is a message I always tell young people. Building anything that lasts takes time. And because we're talking about housing, especially building the foundation, take time building your own foundation as an individual. The foundations of your social connections, the foundations of your spirituality if you are inclined, the foundations of your academic progression, the foundations of your you know, academics, the foundation of your financial um, path, take time. Because as a tall building, the taller the building, the more you have to spend time dealing with that foundation. And sometimes people may not even notice because you have spent a lot of money and time and the foundation is not even being visible. It is fine. It will serve you in the long term. Because guess what? Shortcuts eventually only cut you short. Thank you so much, Maurice. Uh, that was that was quite quite some sound advice. To our listeners, that was Maurice Makolo, the Senior Director Africa Hub at the Habitat for Humanity International. And uh, we were just catching up on what the Habitat for Humanity does, um, his development from the Ford Foundation to the Habitat of Humanity, and ways which we can improve, you know, access to housing and access to um, home on- or home ownership, sorry, in general in Africa. Thank you for joining today's show. See you next time.